what people have been told is like once you're in fight or flight, you should uh, do everything to return back into a uh, normalized state, which is uh, parasympathetic. Um, and so they do meditation, they do, you know, yoga, they, there's so many activities that you can do uh, to return back into that state. But the thing is, you're allowing the chaos around you to manipulate you into a, a sympathetic fight or flight state. And then you're overcompensating uh, using um, meditation, other exercises to bring you back. Hello, I'm Alana Bonneman, naturopath and holistic nutritionist. This podcast is dedicated to reclaiming your health by harnessing yourself as your biggest asset. Get ready because this is where we stand up for your body's ability to heal, go against outdated norms and say yes to change, creating true and lasting success all from the inside out. Thank you so much for being here. This is the Health After 30 podcast and let's get started. Hi friends and welcome back to another episode. Today I'm talking with Dr. Kaushik Ram who's a neuroscientist that's done a lot of extensive research um, in how to reduce the stressful feeling that we kind of get in our body and as the title suggests doing that without medication and even without meditation and since recording this podcast since our conversation I've applied what we've talked about and I've put it into my day-to-day and it has made waves of change not only do I feel like not only do I feel like a more responsive instead of reactive mother, I feel like I'm listening to my kids' needs now. I feel I feel in essence like I'm parenting better. But not only that, I feel in social situations, I have less anxiety. I kind of go to a social setting now and where before I might have kind of had a little like elevated senses of overwhelm and anxiety, I, I don't have that now and it's just dissipated just from practicing what we talk about. So I'm really excited to kind of jump into today's episode and I really hope that you also find it find it useful. Okay, let's get started. Dr. Koshik Ram is a neuroscientist, author and speaker who's done extensive research on how to restore the nervous system to naturally release overwhelm, stress, anxiety and depression. Koshik's author of Hidden World. He's also spoken on TED Talks, been featured in multi-award winning documentaries, and his work's been applied to leadership programs. He understands mental health is a debilitating reality worldwide, and he's on a mission to change that. Please let me give a warm welcome to neuroscientist, old friend, and full-time legend, Dr. Koshik Ram. Hello. Wow. Um, you, you make me feel so special. <laughs> You are special. That's you. What you're doing is awesome and special too. (laughs) Yeah. And likewise. So I'm going to go back to the beginning for you, I guess, because you must have had a pretty extraordinary journey yourself to get to where you are. And before you got this calling of what you're doing, what you're doing. So can you tell me a bit of where you were before all of this started for you? Yeah, so that's a very interesting story because as much as I've tried to deny that aspect of my formative years, it's been the single most powerful structure or foundation that has created who I am now. 
So going back uh, two decades ago, uh, even three decades ago now, I was living in Fiji. And uh, it's an island environment with coconut trees and the beach. And uh, it is true that people are happy, even though it's a third world country, because everything is very much family oriented. And people are, of course, they go to work, they go to school. But because of community, people don't question happiness because everyone's happy. But there was a pivotal moment in that when uh, everything in my life was going as normal, ordinary. I was 16 years old when the military took over the Fijian government and took the prime minister hostage and tortured him for 56 days and the entire country was under curfew. And in that time, my dad basically smuggled me to the airport and put me on a flight and arrived in New Zealand at the age of 16 by myself without really having a chance to say goodbye to my family. So uh, I luckily had an uncle who uh, lived in New Zealand. He picked me up from the airport. And two days later, I was in a new school in a new country uh, without really understanding the English language, like everyone spoke too fast. Um, and I, I literally, my survival mechanism kicked in, which was to completely delete out the past so I can survive this new moment uh, that you have to yeah, live right now. Exactly. So I just focused on school and getting the good grades. And that was a very pivotal moment in my life because. Um, there is a large sort of body of work around um, civil war and uh, refugee trauma and all that kind of stuff, which for me, this is, I'm processing these decades later. Like mm -hmm. this only came to my attention uh, about five years ago when uh, a previous ex-girlfriend of mine probed around my past and I, I kind of sort of skipped over this and then she dug a little deeper and then I was like oh yeah this happened and she was like what and so that uh, yeah uh so yeah for me it, it, it at no point where did I think this was a defining moment but that at the age of 16 it did instill a certain level of independence and uh figuring things out for myself not having to rely on parents and family. And so from a very young age, I was already on a path of uh, independence and standing up on my own feet. So that is a little bit about the formative years of, um, yeah, like the character development that happened at a very early stage. Yeah, which lays the foundation for everything else that's happened in your life. Such pivotal things that happen when we're younger have such large, I was going to say consequences, but effects, the ripple effects when we age. And you've kind of connected neuroscience and the heart to kind of bring together how you can kind of change perhaps past traumas and help one deal with certain anxieties or inherited traumas, depressions, overwhelm that one feels, which maybe we don't feel in control of right now, but is from something that's happened in our past many years ago. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I do um, talk about trauma, uh, but I don't really go dive deep into specific um, trauma cases. Uh, many of it is quite in uh, like based on case studies on a particular individual. And uh, it can be civil war, for example, uh, and military service related trauma, but also, you know, uh, in, in a very common environment, it can even be in a family, a household. And yeah. so uh, we tend to just think of trauma in this bigger scale. But Grand it can scheme, be, big yeah, things that have happened. Mm. But it's happening at such a small scale within the environment that we live in. And uh, you're right, the last two years actually has put tremendous pressures. Uh, one example is um, because parents were staying at home uh, looking after their kids while lockdown was happening, it meant that uh, mom and dad couldn't uh, have space for themselves. Like for a lot of couples going to work is getting away from their partner. So when they come back, they've reset and they can re-engage. But mm -hmm. not being able to do that meant that the rate of domestic violence has gone up uh, tremendously. Bad. And it's, it's not natural like uh, to be locked up inside a house with no place to go. Yeah, a prison. <laughs> exactly. So the, <laughs> the level of coping mechanisms that have happened because of it, you know, mm -hmm. alcoholism, uh, people binge watching like entire, like, I, I don't have TV, so I don't know what people watch, but I can imagine what people would have watched over, you know, this, this yeah. uh, period of time. So there's so many different coping mechanisms that start to take effect. And the problem with coping mechanisms is it prevents you from further success. It's the things that prevent you from being more productive. It's the things that prevent you from uh, engaging with people. Like you might have experienced it yourself. Like you go out and you try to greet someone and they sort of back off, like mm. because the, the social engagement has changed. So there's so many uh, lateral consequences that have happened from policies that were meant yeah. to protect us, but has provided um, much more like long-term adverse effects. Mm. Because like while we've been trying to apply all these coping mechanisms, we've been in this state of stress, right? Like when you're applying these coping mechanisms, it's because you're in this flight or flight response, right? Is that what's happening? That you're kind of getting to the, this sympathetic nervous system, you're stressed, and then you're applying all these coping mechanisms to then deal with the situation. And I guess at what point do you stop trying to kind of just use coping mechanisms and then just live life again? Like, where is that line of I'm, I'm in a stressful situation, I'm coping and life is back to normal and I can like, I can let my guard down again. Yeah. Like, so the, the, so the, black the, and white, is it? <laughs> the, the funny thing is uh, you shouldn't be in your coping mechanism in the first place. Uh, mm. People have not been taught how to regulate their nervous system, let alone how to manage it in, in duress. 
So uh, you shouldn't even be in that state in the first place. Fight or flight shouldn't be your natural way of functioning in daily life. Mm. Uh, but for a lot of people, it is, you know, like uh, how many people take coffee to get started and, you know, take another coffee because it's out of habit. And then the third coffee is actually when, you know, they do become productive. Um, as you know, me, I don't drink, I don't take any stimulants. Uh, there's no like destructive behaviors that, uh, you know, uh, that I resort to because my, I'm not in survival drive. Mm. And that is key because, uh, for example, like if you have a project to complete, if you're in survival mode, your mind can't focus properly on that project. And so you'll postpone it or you'll do other things uh, that are clearly unnecessary, but it means you're doing something as an excuse to abandon the, what you actually should be focused on. So that's called yeah. procrastination. So, so many people have these coping behaviors, right? And it manifests in the things that they actually need to do. And then they use the stress of uh, finishing things in the last minute to get things over the line. This mm -hmm. is completely different to the uh, psychology that I work with because my nervous system is in a parasympathetic baseline. So I have all the time in the world to focus, mm -hmm. to be productive, to um, take time out to think clearly. Uh, yeah. take a thought to a logical conclusion and then implement it. And all these things take time. I cannot do any of these things in a hurry. So yeah. then that leads to a nonlinear way of productivity because everything kind of compounds on itself. And so the reaching the deadline is almost you cross it seamlessly. See. And so this is, you know, like, you talk to people and how they're functioning, what psychology are they using? Is it survival mode or are they in this parasympathetic baseline? That tells everything about how they deal with relationships, how they deal with business, how they deal with health. Uh, because if you're not focusing on those things, obviously your survival mode is at the forefront. Taking over. So parasympathetic nervous system being the opposite, basically, to this flight or flight response, which is what I always talk about as rest and digest. But I mean, it's obviously more than just resting and digesting, right? Um, but what happens? Because there's some things that you can't control. And even, please tell us, like even when you want to be in that parasympathetic state, you like COVID happens, financial things happen, jobs change, employee, you know, struggles or like colleague struggles, sick, sickness, deaths, um, life happens. And how does one stay or should you even aim to stay in that state? Should you even stress yourself to try and stay in the parasympathetic? <laughs> how does that happen? <laughs> Yeah, so th 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 this is another paradox, right? So uh, what people have been told is like once you're in fight or flight, you should uh, do everything to return back into a uh, normalized state, which is uh, parasympathetic. Um, 
And so they do meditation, they do, you know, yoga, there's so many activities that you can do uh, to return back into that state. But the thing is, you're allowing the chaos around you to manipulate you into a a sympathetic fight or flight state. And then you're overcompensating uh, using um, meditation, other exercises to bring you back. Why can't it be that you don't have any control over what's going to happen? And no no control. (laughs) You you, you don't like you you didn't have control over COVID. You don't have control over disease. You didn't don't have control over how your child wants to behave or think. There's so many things that we don't have control over. So instead of trying to control, it's allowing, first of all, to just let go of control, but also to remain in the parasympathetic state so that if the moment demands you to be assertive, you can. If the moment demands you to be compassionate, you can. So the parasympathetic state is not passive. Uh, I want to introduce a concept here called um, vagal tone, which is Mm -hmm. the strength of connection between brain and body. So if there's high vagal tone, it it means there's a very strong connection between brain and body. You can uh, go into an excited state and have the time of your life, but the moment someone comes to you and they need your time, you can decelerate down just as quickly as you went up. And that means there's a strong connection between brain and body. When there's low vagal tone, it means that you're unable to switch out of a state. So if you're in sympathetic state, you'll just remain there. Like anxiety is a good example. It's when the sympathetic state becomes chronic. So Mm -hmm. in that anxious state, you're unable to transition back into parasympathetic. And the same is true for depression. Like when you're in a low numb state and you're unable to get excited you're unable to get aroused like so the the inability to transition between states seamlessly is low vagal tone so Mm -hmm. this is what i teach to my clients how to uh, heighten the vagal tone so they can switch between states and this is not um, pretending and the reason it's not pretending is because your brain and body is connected uh, so it's like it's fully integrated so you cannot fake emotion you cannot lie like there are things that people do which you know put a smile on their face but internally they're cringing this Mm -hmm. is not Mm -hmm. that this is there's nothing unnatural about this so You know, if your heart rate does rise, oh, wow, like, what does that tell you? Does that tell you to numb that feeling or go, mm-hmm. hey, this is pointing towards danger. Maybe this is something that I should pay attention to. So mm-hmm. people overwrite their own body signals and then they try to self-medicate. And that is something that I'm completely against. So mm-hmm. I'd rather teach people how to heighten their vagal tone so they can seamlessly switch between states there's there's nothing artificial about it it's the most authentic way you can be and the most loving compassionate way you can be as well 
because ultimately uh, what is uh, governing everything that is happening around you is the rate of your heart. And so that's where I do dive into the intelligence of the heart, where if you're in fight or flight, all your thought structure is very linear, goal-directed, and very much like in this uh, either escape mode, which is flight, or fight mm. mode, which is you're trying to be aggressive, you're defending yourself in, you know. Coping it, mechanisms. Yeah, trying to control. It's like mm. this, uh, this survival psychology, right? In the parasympathetic state, first of all, there's more endorphins, there's more oxytocin in the system. You're able to create connection. You're able to think things through from compassion. If someone tries to hurt you or hurt your feelings, you go, oh, wow, like instead of reacting to that, you're like, wow, like that person clearly is suffering. What can I do to help them? Mm. And so everything, like the way you behave, your psychology is completely different depending on your heart rate. Okay. So this is, I mean, yeah, this sounds, it sounds like a dream. It sounds better than, yeah, you said better than all the medications, better than meditation. This sounds like the right way that we all need to kind of be in. I mean, the world in a whole, you know, to be in the state of this parasympathetic, this compassion. And also you make, you make it sound quite easy. <laughs> I mean, we're getting our minds around that concept, but how do we even start to make steps in that right direction? Mm. So the, the reason I make it sound easy is because it is. And um, so one of the things I do is um, I use uh, breathing techniques to modulate the heart rate because there's a very intrinsic relationship there every time you inhale the heart rate rises every time you exhale the heart rate slows down so by prolonging the exhale you're actually slowing down the heart rate so as a general rule we keep the exhale twice as long as the inhale so that's so breathing out more than you're breathing in yeah uh so not necessarily it's if you breathe in, say, for four seconds, you'll breathe out for eight seconds. So it's not a shallow breath. It's a deep diaphragmatic breath and a slow, soothing exhale, not forced, just gently breathing out. And so when you, and this is where I coined the term vagal breathing, this is a propriety product that I've created. So using vagal breathing, the next stage is breath by itself is not enough because yeah, sure. Like things happen you try to breathe um, and sure you'll come back down, but I've taken it a step further where your nervous system anticipates threat and calms you down even before it happens. Mm-hmm. So for me, I wanted to make these techniques so accessible that you don't even have to think about it your nervous system does the hard work for you. Mm-hmm. So the way we train that is, um, so as you know, I've been uh, just as passionate about uh, human movement as I've been with neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And these two pathways have um, 
evolved in parallel. And so I've taken some movement techniques that put the body into a state of trance, a state of relaxation. And so once the body learns that state, for many people, that is the first time they experience a true parasympathetic state. And the moment that happens, they immediately feel exhausted. And they can't even like, if they're lying on the ground, they can't even get back up because it's like a state of deep sleep. And when they reach that state, it's so unfamiliar to the nervous system that it goes, ah, the body must be sleeping. And so they feel immediately exhausted because their entire way of existence has been fight or flight. They've only known that state. So they don't know how to function in the parasympathetic state. To them, it feels mm-hmm. like sleep and yeah. exhaustion. And the body goes into rest and restoration and repair. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they sometimes feel exhausted, sometimes even feel sick because uh, it's the same thing as working really hard and then suddenly going on vacation. The first thing that happens is you fall sick Get because sick. that's the first opportunity <laughs> for your nervous system to relax. The body right? just comes down. Yep. We yeah. We all know that so too well. I do that uh, through this very basic movement exercise that anyone can do. And once I've taught that, once I've taught a person what a parasympathetic state feels like in its true form, then I take it a step further and use stress inoculation and fear conditioning, which uh, compound stress onto the nervous system. And I teach the person to maintain that state uh, regardless of stress. And so once the nervous system learns, it only needs to learn once. Once it has learned how to do that, um, the training is complete. Off you go. And your nervous system will kick in by itself. Okay. Sounds like almost like a neuroplasticity, like a building new pathways for the body to be in that it perhaps hasn't learned in childhood because you don't learn that stuff in childhood. You don't, I mean, I feel like childhood is just perhaps even flight or flight, just, (laughs) you know, learning how to enter the world. So I guess as adults, we need to relearn how to then live and to be in the state. I remember a time so Koshik and I, we used to live together um, 10 years ago, I guess it was. Um, and, you know, it was a whole group of us. This, I think, I remember, I don't know who exactly was there, um, but the movement. And I just remember being in a conversation with you and you stood in front of me and you said, push me. <laughs> like, what? You said, push me. And so I got one hand, I pushed your shoulder and you so effortlessly flowed with your whole body through the movement of me pushing you. I don't know why I remember this. And I have a feeling that when you say body connection, could this be something to do with this being complete at, at ease and ready to experience what happens to you, whatever that may be. And for whatever direction it may be, I'm like moving as I say this, <laughs> because I just remember you doing that as I was there pushing you. Is that somehow connected or am I just in the wrong area of the park right now? No, it's a hundred percent connected. You're absolutely right. Um, so That exercise is an exercise on, first of all, tactile sensitivity. 
that is something we have clearly lost and need to recover, especially after isolation. Uh, a lot of people don't even know that other than our five primary senses, the skin alone has five senses. And the skin is the largest organ of our body. And so if we don't even understand the functions of the largest organ of our body, like what hope do we have <laughs> of inhabiting our own body? body. <laughs> you know? So a lot of these exercises, um, especially that pushing one, is actually to teach the nervous system to relax because a push feels like a threat right? Mm -hmm. uh, if someone pushes you, immediately the nervous system registers that as a threat. It's counterintuitive to relax in that moment. Into it. And mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. So as you remember, when, I, when we were living together in the house, I was um, doing my PhD at that time. And I was working at Westmead Hospital at the Department of Psychiatry, which is I mean, Westmead Hospital is the largest hospital in the Southern Hemisphere, but it's located. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So it's out west. And so I'd be traveling an hour and a half there and an hour and a half back in public transport. And so on the way back one night, uh, I had worked late. Uh, it was around 7 p.m. It was getting dark. And uh, I was on this train and a couple of stops after the hospital, a, a, a Ireland kid walked into the train. And it was huge. He was probably 14 or 15 years old, but he was massive. And he looked around and he saw me as an easy, easy target. And so he sat next to me and I'm sitting next to a window and he literally pushed against me and pushed me right into the wall, into the window. And he was trying to um, get a reaction out of me so that, mm. you know, it causes a bit of tension. And instinctually, anyone would respond like, you know, trying to push away or get away. So this is fight or flight, right? Mm -hmm. In no one's right mind would they relax in that moment. That's what I did. As I relaxed, his body started to sink into mine. And mm. psychologically, he didn't understand what was going on. So he just like, well, what, what, what the? And he what, just yeah. got, got up because this is a psychological uh, short circuit, right? He just yeah. got up and he was so threatened by what had happened that he just got You were up like first. hugging him. You were, yeah, he came into you and you accepted him. And he, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, I, he, his weight basically relaxed into into mine so he was sinking into my body and psychologically he couldn't compute what was happening so he just like literally like short-circuited and left <laughs> so without saying a single word I diffused that threat mm. and for a lot of people without knowing how to deal with uh, these situations um, they try to overcompensate for it because yeah. it's like you put a fire out here and then another one is happening out there. You're trying to put all these fires out because you're in reactive mode mm. and it's just too overwhelming. I don't yeah. know how people do it. <laughs> so uh, they end up, it's yeah, <laughs> exhaustion, adrenal fatigue, burnout. 
all yeah. of these things that are very um, present in in our world today. Yeah, I was even having a conversation with my mom. You know, I I live in a city uh, with my family, and she was visiting, and she just said things were different when you were younger, and she, on several, you know, several different ways life was different and I'm not, I don't want to put on, you know, amber glasses and think, oh, back in the good old days, things were different, but it's just the way in which the world is changing. It's not necessarily changing for the, um, for the, for the individual human to flourish and be nourished. It's kind of, I don't even, I mean, the world, the way in which it was going, it's yeah, not perhaps centered for the human. It's, to, to, to be to be well and to be whole, I feel. And because of that, we're put in these situations which one single human shouldn't have to necessarily be put in. As an example, a parent in a nuclear family in a big city with no support. This is a very, from my own experience, what feels like a very unnatural state to be in. Um, Another example, Corona, as we just talked about, even the people who, um, you know, live by themselves, then to not have any social contact and be in an apartment or a house by themselves, that's just not a natural state that humans need to be in or should be in. One of the reasons actually why I wanted to get you on the podcast, because I was watching a video on your website and the first few sentences into this video, I thought were really profound. And I'm going to quote you here. (laughs) So what you said was, the evolution of humankind has been hijacked by the human mind. That we've almost lost touch to the intelligence of our body altogether. And when someone says, listen to your body, they don't know what to refer to. Can you tell me more about this? Absolutely. So Listening to the body is a product of uh, what we talked about previously, which is vagal tone. And as you know, in society, we have become so far detached from our body because of chronic thinking. We spend so much time uh, contained in our own heads that we have lost touch with the rest of our body. And the consequence of that is that we don't know the signals that the body is speaking through. Mm. Exhaustion is a signal. It says, stop, time to take a rest. Pain is a signal. It says, oh, maybe uh, this position or this way of doing things is corrosive on the body. Uh, There's other more subtle signals. Uh, signals that the heart picks up, such as um, intuition, the signals Mm -hmm. that the uh, sensory motor system picks up, we call that instinct. So these are things that is so deeply hardwired into our nervous system, but the moment it occurs as a reaction, we tend to uh, disregard it or abandon it altogether. It's like intuition might say something like, oh, 
um, you know, uh, maybe stop working right now, walk outside. And it, it, it might not mm. mean, it, it might not be logical in any sense. You're like, I should be more productive by working harder. But the intuition spoke of something else. Uh, I have these moments a lot in my days where I'm hyper-focused, working for sometimes seven, eight to like 18 hours straight. And uh, I've trained myself to be that hyper-focused, but I might start working one day and I work for two hours and then suddenly the something shifts and my train of thought is lost and I'm completely blank. And in that moment, a new thought arises and it's got nothing to do with what I'm doing. But mm. I follow that thought. And what do you know? Like something uh, remarkable happens that is would have seemed unrelated to what I was doing, but added to what I was doing in a much more profound sense than what I could have done through hard working. And so mm-hmm. these are the signals that basically are the scaffolding for higher cognition. And most people do not have access to this because, ah, you're feeling exhausted. Here's another cup of coffee. Keep going. Mm -hmm. And by the time they do pay attention to their body, it's already too late. Yeah. So at that point, the body isn't speaking to you anymore. It is screaming <laughs> to be heard. And that's when, ah, oh, like you end up in hospital or like, you know, you have uh, acquired some disease. It's already too late. Too late. Mm. So how does one differentiate between this is my body giving me a red flag or my intuition speaking versus I'm procrastinating, you know, like procrastinating on something that we that I need to be doing when you're constantly in a stress mode and you're putting out all these fires, how do you know the difference between this is just me putting out another fire and this is something deeper? Yeah. So that, that is a hundred percent obvious. If you're in fight or flight, (laughs) Nothing your body tells you is accurate. It's mixed messages, right? The moment you're in the parasympathetic state, your vagal tone is high. You're more responsive and you're more perceptive to listen. Mm -hmm. So something in my reality would change and that would signify, okay, I should pay attention to that. But attention has been robbed from society these days. It's Attention as a commodity is more valuable than oil or gold or like any of the other, you know, commodities that were so valuable uh, half a century ago. Mm, an intangible at, commodity. Yeah. So if you look at, you know, the, the biggest companies of our time, they're all software comp- uh, companies mining our attention. Mm. And they're not mining, you know, uh, commodities that were buried under the earth anymore. So to have autonomy over your own attention is extremely rare. And (laughs) yeah, so these these things are so simple. 
yet at the same time so extreme for people who live today and luckily for us we grew grew up at a time that predated the internet mm-hmm. and so we have a um a reference point of what life was without all these high tech connections so mm-hmm. I understand that it's so difficult for people to shift their attention. So I don't even work with that. I work with the nervous system directly. So I take pretty much all the work and effort out of their hands and just uh, get the nervous system to do the heavy lifting because it's already too hard. Like if someone's so busy that they can't say, you know, hide to their mom and dad uh, in their daily life, like how would they find time to spend 20 minutes meditating daily? Yeah. Like it's, meditation never seems to work for some, you know, it's like, I've tried it. Exactly. I tried the app. Yes. There are techniques that are far simpler and more efficient than meditation and you don't even need to practice it. Mm. Profound. Absolutely profound. It sounds like work that needs to be in schools in the future. Because as you said, we grew up with the luxury of knowing what it was like before internet, but the children of today don't have that. And it's a skill that everyone's going to need. And I I have worked with schools here. So uh, I ran a program that was funded by Department of Education to go into schools and teach teachers about um, mental health first aid, which is, Mm. you know, every teacher knows CPR. But what do you do when a kid is uh, reacting uh, in a very exaggerated way or what, what, what happens when they're experiencing childhood trauma or what, you know, like we treat childhood trauma in adult life, but what if you could catch it the moment it was happening, mm. right? So, um, uh, and the results I've got from school, especially from teachers and their own mental health so that they can truly be there for the kids has been remarkable. So, that, that is something that I, I want to do more of. And the more schools I can work with, the more lives I can change. Absolutely. Changing the world. Aim of 5 million people. That's right, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Kaushik, amazing. So if people want to know um, more about what you're doing or get in touch with you, uh, where can they find you? So I'm on... Uh, most uh, social media platforms, uh, Instagram and uh, YouTube are probably the most active. Uh, there's a lot of free information on YouTube. So basically I'm providing university grade information for free on YouTube, but in a very uh, tangible and uh, easily accessible manner. So it's, um, uh, I'm not over complicating things with science. And um Yeah, I also have an online course, which is called Train Your Nervous System. Everything that we've talked about in in this podcast is accessible on that course. 
And I also have a book called Hidden World, The Inside Story of the Soul. And in that, it's more of a mystical approach uh, to all of this because um, where all of this is coming from is a deeply spiritual state. And Mm -hmm. uh, that has been probably the only guiding force that I've um, had in my entire life. Uh, the guidance of the heart. Yeah. Wow. I'll link all of those into the show notes as well. It was an absolute pleasure talking with you, Koshik. I feel in a sense different from actually the start of this episode. Everything is parasympathetic right now. But my last question to you, I guess, the last thing I want to ask you is if there's a bit of advice or a tool or a practice that someone can start right now to make one step in the next direction, what would it be? So there's a quote um, from, uh, I think it was Viktor Frankl, who said uh, between, uh, uh, between stimulus and response, we always have a choice. And this is where I bring in the vagal breathing. So a stimulus happens. If you can breathe in that moment, inhale through the nose, expand the diaphragm and breathe out through the mouth, relax the body. A single breath in that moment between stimulus and response can completely change the outcome so if you have for example a kid who has upset you and instead of going straight into reactive mode try vagal breathing just one breath will completely shift the way you respond to that stimulus wonderful thank you so much koshik i'll catch you next time Absolutely. Thank you, Alana. I don't think I need to tell you that your health is one of the most important aspects to a fulfilling life. Whether it's being fully active in the things you love, keeping up with your children, or walking out of the house and feeling confident in your body. Chances are, if you're listening to this, you're ready for change. But let's face it, it's not always easy. It can be confusing and super overwhelming. And everyone seems to be teaching that one thing. But the problem is our health is not whittled down to just one thing. And until you take a holistic approach to taking care of yourself and your health, chances are you'll be missing more than one thing. That's where I come in. I work with motivated people who are ready to reclaim their health in a holistic way and I walk them through the essential things they need to succeed. Whether you're starting your health journey or looking for the next step, you're going to see how to do things differently. To step into the role you need to reclaim your health, head over to alanabonneman.com to get started. Thanks for listening. Be well, and I'll catch you next time.